What is up, New Journey? Grab those Bibles, devices, whatever it is you're going to use to look at God's Word this morning. Open them up uh, as I open mine up to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6 as we took a look at uh, Gideon part 1, the beckoning of the broken. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, this backstory, but in 1898, two men uh, were forced to stay together in the same hotel room due to overcrowding. Uh, that would you know, initially seemed very awkward, but they soon found that uh, one of the things that they held in common was they both loved Jesus Christ. And so they decided that uh, that evening they would have an evening devotion together, and they did. And uh, near the end of that devotion together, they both began to feel very convinced that one of the things that God wanted them to do was start an association that would bond together and encourage uh, fellow Christian travelers. Uh, they had to come up with a name because if you have an association, you have an organization, you always have to name it. In our modern world, we would have to you know, create a social media campaign, have hashtags, all that sort of stuff to go with it. But they want a name for their organization, and so they hold a special time of prayer. And at the end of that special time of prayer, one of the men uh, stood up and very simply said, We shall be called Gideons, and proceeded to read Judges chapter 6 and 7. Uh, Since all the early... Uh, Gideons, members of the Gideons were traveling men, many of them salesmen. Uh, they wanted to figure out how they could be the most effective witness they could be inside of hotel rooms. And one of their members uh, suggested that they should set as a goal to put a Bible inside of every hotel room inside the United States. Uh, now, a little over 120 years later, uh, more than 2 billion Bibles have been placed by the Gideons. On average, more than Two Bibles are distributed per second today. That is roughly over a little over one million Bibles are handed out every four days. Now, when you first hear of Gideon in our modern world, my hunch is this is probably your very first thought when you hear the word Gideon is this group that distributes Bibles. And praise God for the Gideons. My, my brother was saved reading a Bible placed by the Gideons in his prison cell. And so the biblical story of Gideon uh, one of the things I'm afraid of is that the biblical story of Gideon has been to a degree forgotten because of the enormity of the work of this fantastic organization. But we're going to actually read the story of Gideon. And I think one of the things you'll find is that I have no idea how they connected Gideon to an organization that hands out Bibles. All right, I'm just going to confess that right now. But what we are going to read as we, it's going to take us a couple of weeks to unpack the story of Gideon. But as we unpack that, we're going to find a story about a man who was full of questions and doubts and weaknesses. But we're also going to read about a mighty God who is patient and who is able to use people who are full of questions and doubts and weaknesses. Uh, Gideon is no doubt about it. He is a broken man living in a broken world. And God will beckon him to come out from underneath his brokenness to become whole and holy in him. So join me there in Judges chapter 6 as we read the first 24 verses and then we'll come back and make some observations. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Now I'm going to stop right here and just point out that it's a really important phrase in the book of Judges is that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It didn't matter what the people of Israel thought about it. It didn't matter what the culture said about it. 
They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and his opinion on the matter was the only one that mattered. All right, so let's read verse 2. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites plant, planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the field as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey, for they would come up with their livestock in their tents, they would come like locusts in number, both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord, said to, uh, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizurite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house, prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas! O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Don't fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it stand, still stands at Oprah, which belongs to the Abizurites. So let's talk about 
kind of unpacking what we see here in this beckoning of the broken man Gideon. And I think the very first thing we need to note is the bitterness and the blaming that always takes place in brokenness when people are broken. broken. Because in suffering, what we very often do is we criticize God and we ask him to defend what he's doing rather than ask him for deliverance. Uh, sort of setting the stage in the text, we're told that a group of what I would call land pirates known as the people of Midian, begin to oppress Israel. They don't inhabit the land. They would simply show up when it was harvest time and they would eat all the produce and even carry off some of the livestock. We're told that things are so bad in Israel that they are moving into caves and into holes to attempt to hide what they have from the Midianites. Uh, I guess hole in the wall is a good description for a restaurant, but not for your residence, right? Uh, things are so bad that Israel is essentially living in cardboard boxes and alleys. And then we meet Gideon eventually in the text, and we're told that he is threshing grain inside of the family winery rather than out in the open, which would have been the norm because if he didn't do it that way, the people of Midian would have come and taken what he had. I think verse 6 probably best captures the overall mood in Israel that the writer of Judges is trying to convey. Israel has been brought very low, very low. The Lord's people are low down. And then when we get to verse 7, we sort of get in the next section, we get the low down as to why. They are low down and we get the low down as to why. God sends an unnamed prophet who begins to tell Israel why it is that they find themselves in such a sad state. Now this is incredibly interesting. Israel needs a deliverer. And the norm so far in the book of Judges has been that Israel would fall under the oppression of an enemy. They would need a deliverer. They would cry out and God would grant them this deliverer. But the story of Gideon breaks from the norm because rather than a deliverer, a warrior, God sends them a preacher instead, <laughs> right? That's what everybody wants in their greatest time of need, right? Is a preacher to come and lecture them as to why they find themselves in the position that they are in. Um, this is intentional on God's part. It's very clear in the text that Israel is not asking for a deliverer. They're really asking for God to give a defense of why things are the way they are. So God very intentionally sends them a preacher instead of a warrior. And I think that is revealed that this is what Israel is doing. They are asking God for a defense. This is revealed from the content of the pastor's sermon in verses 7 through 10. It reveals the nature of Israel's crying out to God. Now, cry out for help, we would assume, and it sort of implies that they are asking God for compassion. But very clearly, they are criticizing God and complaining and asking Him to give answers as to why things are the way they are in Israel. We also see this, I think, when the angel of the Lord first comes to Gideon and he calls him a mighty man of valor and he tells him that the Lord is with him. And I don't know if you caught Gideon's response in verse 13, but it's basically this, child, please. Just look around at where we are. Look around at the way things are. Clearly, the Lord is not with us. He may have been with us in the past. We have heard about the mighty deeds that He have done from our dads and our granddads, but either God has gotten old and He can't sort of get up off of the couch as fast as He used to and come to our rescue, or He has forgotten about us. 
But either way, it's getting old hearing about how much God loves us and He is with us when I look around at the suffering of my people. Right? He meant no words with the angel. Gideon is like the person who is sick and tired of hearing that God loves them and as for them, they have suffered some injustice in the world and they believe this is at the hands of God. This is maybe all in their minds, but they have suffered some injustice in their minds at the hands of God and they walk out the door today hoping, believing, like wanting someone to dare tell them that God loves them and is for them and has not forsaken them. And when that sad person, that unfortunate person shows up and begins to try to encourage them, they become like a broken fire hydrant and the hate and the vitriol just come spewing out. They want to know why. Why is this happening to me? Where is this good God you keep telling me about in the middle of all that I am going through? Where is this God of love and power that the Bible speaks of? Right? Now, the human side of us can understand how somebody can get there because if we're being honest, even as Christians, sometimes we feel that way too. So this demand that God defend himself, it is natural to us who are born with a sin nature. Demanding an answer from God is natural, but I think it also reveals something very insidious that lives on the inside of us. C.S. Lewis, I think, captured this well, this evil essence of our interrogation of God when he wrote, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. But for the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. The man, he is the judge, and God is in the dock. That's a witness stand. He, the man, he thinks of himself as a quite kindly judge. And if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, he, the man, he's ready to listen to it. The trial of God may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that it is man who is on the bench and God who is in the witness stand. <laughs> right? I agree with Lewis except for one thing. The modern man is not the only person who struggles with this. Everyone born with a sin nature struggles with this. The modern man, yes, he wants God to defend himself. He forgets that God is inscrutable, that God is the judge to whom we all must give an account and an answer, not the other way around. But the Bible bears out that so did the ancient man. And I think we see that in Judges chapter 6 with Gideon. In fact, I would argue that this heinous habit has its roots not even in Gideon, but all the way back in the garden. Think about Eve. She appealed to her own wisdom. She concluded that God was in the wrong. And she fell from perfection and into sin as the end result. Matt Slick, who maybe some of you know, uh, who writes for or started a website called the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry or CARM.org for short. He writes this, The Edenic lie is alive and well on earth. People want to be like God. In fact, they want to take the place of God or even tell God how it is that he should behave. <laughs> Man, that feels familiar. We need to be careful. We need to be oh so careful. We need to remember that God owes us no answers and he gives us no apologies. Now honest, humble, seeking after answers from God, that is one thing. But arrogantly demanding them from God is totally another. Right? We 
want to know why things don't always seem to be going the way we think they should. Israel has the very same question in Judges chapter 6. The very same question. Why has God let them become the target of bullies and bad guys? So God sends them a preacher to tell them why. <laughs> they wanted a defense, but before they could even understand God's defense, they needed some discernment. So God sends them a preacher and a prophet to be a witness to them and share a word from him. And God's answer, I think, is really summarized best in verse 10, and I think it applies equally to Israel and to our world as well. And I think that's where we can sort of change over and not talk, stop talking about the bitterness and the blaming and brokenness and rather talk about this brokenness is what we have built. <laughs> In other words, we're responsible, right? We're responsible. Sin has corrupted us as individuals and has even corrupted our institutions. Um, God basically says, if you go back and, and read that, those verses, verses 7 through 10, he essentially says, here's what I did, <laughs> which was deliver you with acts of power and love. And here's what you've done, which is to do exactly what I told you not to do, which is to sin. And because you have sinned, you are suffering the consequences of living as broken people in a world that is ruled and dominated by sin and Satan. Friends, that's the answer. That's the answer. We are suffering the consequences when we suffer of living in a broken world as broken people in a world that is corrupted, is ruled, is dominated by sin and Satan and to complain to God and about God that everything in our life is not perfect is like living in the desert and complaining to God and about God that there's too much sand. Right? Sand comes with the desert. <laughs> Suffering comes with living in a broken world. Now, here's the good news. It, won't all, it wasn't always this way. And the really good news is that it won't be this way forever. Right? Now let's go back to the fact that it wasn't always this way. Adam and Eve were created by God and He gifted the entire creation to them and it was perfect. There were no tears, no terrible news, no treachery. Right? You could... Drink all the sweet tea you wanted and not gain any weight. The kids always slept past 8 a.m. on Saturday morning. College football was on TV 24-7, 365. I mean, it was perfect, right? But Adam and Eve messed that up when they sinned. Now, mankind still exerts some level of control over the creation, but Satan began to corrupt every part of who we are as humans and that would include all the systems and programs we have created as humans as well. You see, sin's corruption is not just of individual humans but of our human institutions as well. I base this biblically on what John writes in 1 John 5.19 where John writes, we know that we, Christians, are from God and the whole world, everything that is not, does not belong to God, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, the most important phrase here is the whole world. What does John mean when he says the whole world? Well, he means that Satan's reach extends beyond just our hearts to our entire way of life. Johnny Mac, John MacArthur comments on 1 John 5.19 that by the whole world, John means the whole human system. There's nothing in it. There's nothing about it that is not under Satan's control. It's economics. It's politics. It's religion. 
It's education. It's everything. It's entertainment, athletics, everything, everything, everything. There are elements of the world that we can enjoy because of God's creation. And we can see the image of God and we can see the creative glory of God manifest in the world. But the system that functions within His creation is a system that is completely contaminated. Right? Now, you say, is that really true? Well, let's just say that you come over to my house for supper and I put the most delicious plate of mashed potatoes you have ever seen in front of you and then I take and I go outside and I find just a little bitty piece of bird poop and I put it just on the top. The whole thing is ruined. It only touched just a little part of it but the entire thing became contaminated because of one little touch of what was unholy and unclean. Right? The world we live in every day is like a mini version of hell minus the flames and torment. It's not maybe hell on earth, but it definitely ain't heaven on earth either, is it? At best, it's something between those two. And to complain that a world where Satan's influence touches every atom, every tradition, to complain that that kind of world is not always fun to live in is neither theologically or intellectually honest. In that kind of world, suffering and struggle just come with the territory. Now that does not mean that we should just accept unjust systems or ways of operating. God's people are called to see justice come to fruition, in particular for the marginalized and the disenfranchised, and to be people of mercy. We are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the injured, the down and out, and the least of humanity. But the fact remains that sin has corrupted our world. And not just sin in general. You and I, we, have contributed to the problem as well. <laughs> right? We've added our own rebellion and wretchedness to the ever-rising trash heap of humanity's sin against God. There's a ledger somewhere which contains the record of man's sin against God and the cause of all the chaos and catastrophe that surrounds us. And that ledger includes my name too. And it includes your name too. It's important to see that Israel in this text is not just suffering because they live in a fallen world. They are suffering because they specifically had done what God had told them not to do. They specifically had sinned by being faithless. They had failed to worship God and Him alone. The Midianite consequence is what the Fox News of the day would have called it. The Midianite consequence for Israel was not just due to some generic suffering because they lived in a fallen world, but it is God's sovereign suffering and it has a purpose and it is meant to draw His people back to Him. The Midianite consequence was His loving discipline of His people. And you think, man, that doesn't sound like a very good God. Well, as rough as living in caves would have to be, living without Christ is worse. And God always does what is best for us even if it's not what is comfortable for us. What Israel needed to be happy was not just peace in their land, but peace in their hearts. And to have that, to have peace in their hearts, God would have to break their heart into a thousand pieces first. So let's talk about how God breaks the broken to bless them. Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but sometimes we refuse to admit a broken thing is broken. 
and, and I can't help it, but I'm kind of looking over here at my good buddy, my brother in Christ, Josh Ward, who believes that a hammer and duct tape and a Q-tip can fix everything. <laughs> and he's right about half the time anyway, right? Sometimes something's broken, and we don't want to admit that it's broken for whatever reason. And we continue to try to use it. We work around its deficiencies, and we refuse to throw it out. The problem is it's broken, and it needs to be thrown out. And we need to start over with something new. Until we admit, friends, that we are broken, until we admit that we are bruised and beat up, we will never turn to Christ to heal us, to hold us, and to put us back together. A sick person can't get medicine unless they go to the doctor first. Before you can get a prescription, you must see the physician. Right? God pushes His holy finger into our wounds. Yes, He does that, but it is for the sake of convincing us that we are sick and we need His medicinal grace, the grace that only He can offer if we are to be made well both now and for all of eternity. God breaks broken people, but He never does it out of spite or revenge. He does it for the sake of salvation and redemption. You say, man, I don't know. That still doesn't sound like a very good God. That sounds like kind of a mean way to go about it. Well, if your home caught on fire tonight and a family member whom you love is in such a deep sleep that they cannot be awoken to escape the flames and you threw cold water on them that would shake them out of their slumber, would that be the actions of someone who loves them or the actions of a jerk? Right? If you're suffering today, friends, could it be? Could it be that your suffering is to awaken you to the emptiness of what this world has to offer you so that you will be filled with Jesus Christ? Could it be that your pain, your sorrow, your agony are to show you a glimpse of what all of eternity will be like in hell unless you turn from your sin and trust Christ? Perhaps God is breaking you because you refuse to admit you're broken. Still, some people like Gideon can't see God's goodness. They can't see His grace and His discipline. And at times, at times, allowing the consequences of life in a fallen world to run their course. To that person, I would remind you of this. Not only was it not always this way, but the good news is it won't always be this way. So let's talk now about how God will break the rule of sin and return this broken world to being an object of beauty and blessing once again. God has reversed the curse of sin and it will be fully culminated when Jesus Christ returns again. The earth will be restored to its original state to glorify God the way it was meant to. All the things on that day when Christ returns, all the things that belong in hell will be locked away there forever and they will bother man and neither belittle or battle God anymore. Hell on earth, whatever level we experience of it, will go away and we're told that heaven will come down with Christ. This time, here's the even better news, this time it can't be messed up because unlike at the Garden of Eden, the rule of the new heaven and new earth will not be entrusted to mankind. We've already seen what we do with it when we're in charge. This time, Christ will reign. Christ will rule. And this will ensure that what Adam and Eve unleashed on the creation will never happen again. 
On that day, hardship and heartache will vanish and they will be vanquished. Now, they'll still exist, right? Just not in heaven. (laughs) They'll still exist, just not in heaven. Pain will still be alive and well, but it is locked behind the gates of hell forevermore and Jesus Christ is the one who holds the key. To the person struggling to see God's goodness in the struggle of life in our world, I would add that not only was it not always this way, not only will it not always be this way, but I would also add to you that God's promise to Gideon and all of his people who are with him, in him, in Christ, here's here's an even better promise. The Lord is with us. So you say, well, Kevin, that's good news, right? It wasn't always that way. It won't always be this way. Well, what does that do for me today living between those two realities? Well, here's the good news. Here's God's promise to Gideon and to all of those who are in Christ. The Lord is with us even in our struggling and even in our suffering. So let's talk about the beckoning of the broken. The angel uh, of the Lord, he starts his call to Gideon by telling him that the Lord is with him. And Gideon objects, and the angel answers Gideon's objection by repeating the same phrase. Now, just a little note here on reading your Bible. When an angel or just the Bible itself repeats something, we need to pay attention because when you really mean something, you either say it twice or you tell the person listening, don't make me say it twice. (laughs) Right? So that's an important phrase. The Lord tells Gideon not to give up. And Gideon doesn't think he's strong enough. He goes through this whole charade about how he is the least dude in his family and his family is the least family in all of Israel. Gideon doesn't think he is strong enough. And God, in spite of that, twice calls Gideon a warrior or a mighty man of valor. Now reading that, you would assume, based on what Gideon said about himself, God calling him a warrior and a mighty man of valor, this is one of those like sarcastic nicknames like a seven-foot dude being named Tiny. Right? I mean, think about where Gideon is when the angel comes to him. He's hiding out, threshing wheat, sneaking around. God tells him to tear down an altar in the next, pair, in the next uh, section of verses that belong to his family and his town. And he does it, but he does it under the cover of darkness out of fear. Gideon's not just a critic and a complainer. He's a coward. These are not the actions of a warrior. These are the actions of a weakling. Gideon basically looks at the angel and says, Have you got the right Gideon? The angel of the Lord checks his clipboard and says, Yes. Gideon, son of Joash, tribe of Manasseh, who lives in Orpha. This is the the Gideon that God has come to see and to speak to. Now, I find this incredibly encouraging that in spite of Gideon being a coward, God calls him a warrior. Because it reminds me that in the gospel, God doesn't see our failures and our flaws. Gideon is a coward, but God sees a warrior. Because he sees who Gideon can be, who Gideon will be, filled with his spirit and covered by his grace. In the gospel, God forgives our sins and he covers them with the blood of Christ. I don't know if you have small children who've ever spilled Kool-Aid somewhere but it will not come up. And sometimes you have the little kids and they spill the Kool-Aid on the carpet and you have one of two options. You can either get new carpet, not very cost effective, or you can move a piece of furniture over the top of the stain (laughs) and no one will ever see it again. Now you'll still know it's there, but you can't see it. So you can operate as if it doesn't exist. Well, friends, in the gospel, 
It's as if God moves the cross like a piece of furniture which he uses to cover the stain and the ugliness of our sin. It still exists and he knows it, but he can't see our sin because the blood of Christ covers and hides it. In Christ, God, who no, God no longer relates to us based on who we are not and what we can't do, but rather who we are in him and what he can and will do in and through us. Gideon's confession is, God, I can't do what it is that you're calling me to do. I'm too weak, too broken, too exhausted, too jacked up, too scared. And notice in the text something really important. God never argues with Gideon. <laughs> he never corrects him. He never chastises him. He never says, well, you're not as bad as you really think you are. He is everything he thinks he is, and he is not everything he thinks he is not, and yet God will use him anyway and call him anyway because we serve a God who beckons the broken. The Lord is with Gideon, and he is with us. Gideon then asks the angel to wait while he preps a meal, and he does. And what good news that the Lord is not just with Gideon, but he waits with and he waits for Gideon, just like he waits with and for us. Gideon brings the meal. The angel causes it to go up and smoke and then disappears. And Gideon in that moment realizes, I think his eyes are, are finally thrown open to be able to finally see that the Lord has not just been with him, but has been with him this whole time. Now from time to time, God providentially allows us to have a Gideon moment. We're able to step back from our pain and our struggle and we're able to see that God has never left our side. He has never left us alone to try and figure this all out by ourselves. He has been with us and he has been with us the whole time. He didn't just recently show up. He never left. If not in this life and the next one, we will be able to see with open eyes and open hearts and we'll be able to look back over the events of our life and we'll be able to trace the hand of God in every single one of them and see that we were never alone. The Lord was with us the whole time. Now the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with us. I think it has a double meaning in the text and to us on this side of Christ. The first one's obvious. The Lord is with us, meaning He's not forgotten about us. He has not forsaken us, but He is faithful to stay with us and walk alongside us as we journey. That's the first meaning of the Lord is with me. The Lord is with us. But I think the second meaning, while being less obvious, I believe is more glorious. And that is this, that God is not just with us, but He has entered into our broken world. He's not just with us in our brokenness, but He has entered into our broken world. He has entered into our battle with flesh and blood, and by His blood and broken body has overcome it all. Right? God is not ambivalent to our struggle as flesh and blood. He knows that struggle. He knows our struggle and suffering because He entered into it Himself. The God of the Gospel and of the Bible is not deistic like many imagine Him to be. Deism believes, yes, God exists and He is real, but He doesn't really care uh, about the affairs of mankind. If the world is to be fixed, if we're to be fixed, it's up to us. We must do something. Many of our founding fathers were deistic like Thomas Jefferson. Americans, I think because of that, because that's our heritage, our roots, we have always had a bit of a deistic slant upon God and upon life. We believe in pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And if it is to be, it's up to me. 
Right? Yes, God exists and we worship Him, but He's some abstract reality that we can't really know. And if my day-to-day life is to go well and be fixed, then I've got to do something to make that happen. Deism says, yes, God is there, but way out there. The gospel says God is not just there, but He is here with us. The gospel says Jesus can identify with our struggle as flesh and blood because he entered into that very same struggle by taking on flesh and blood. Now, when somebody says they're with you, again, it can mean that they are literally present or nearby, or it can mean this. It can mean I get what you're going through at the moment because I've walked down that same road and wore those same shoes. In the case of Jesus Christ, both are true. He is with us, never leaving our side, and he gets what we're going through because he's walked down that road before we have. Whatever you're facing, Jesus has faced it. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, fly in the face of any thought that we have a God that doesn't care about our struggle as flesh and blood. It says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest. And I love that phrasing because it implies that every other religion doesn't have this. For we and Jesus, we Do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence. What is our confidence? That he has overcome, he is without sin, he has credited that righteousness to us, but our confidence is also that we won't be turned away because he's worn out or tired of hearing about how hard things are for us. He knows what that's like, and he says, come and talk to me about it. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Not judgment, not lecturing. To the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus knows the battle. He said, man, my friends, my family, they're betraying me. Jesus experienced that. Got financial troubles. Jesus was often homeless. You got a bad diagnosis and death is coming for you at too young of an age. Jesus knows what that's like. You've lost loved ones, people you really loved and cared about to death, and you don't feel like that was probably fair. Jesus knows what that's like. He attended the funerals of people he loved, and he didn't bring them all back to life. For instance, his earthly father, Joseph. God feels distant and aloof at the moment. Jesus hung on the cross and asked God, why have you forsaken me? Gripped by paralyzing fear, anxieties. Jesus sweat drops of blood the night before he was arrested. Depression, discouragement. Jesus says in Mark 14, 34, that his soul is sorrow to the point of death. No other religion has a God like this. All the other gods are out there somewhere off in the distance, and if you make it to them, fine. If not, that's your problem. Man imagines God to be aloof and apathetic about his plight, but this is from man's imagination. What does the word of God say? It tells us that Jesus cares about our struggle so much that he came and entered into that struggle as flesh and blood as well. And then, 
And gloriously in the, in the book of Hebrews, if we put Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, alongside Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, they kind of come alongside each other. And, and Hebrews 2 declares that not only did Jesus take on flesh and blood, but he has overcome them through the killing of himself in the flesh and the shedding of his blood. Hebrews 2, 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Friends, he knows your struggle because he entered into our struggle and he alone has made it through to the other side unscathed by sin. Now somebody might object, they would say, well, if Jesus never sinned, then he doesn't know how bad temptation really is. He doesn't really understand how bad the struggle really is. Jesus lived a sheltered life. He's out of touch with what it really means to be human. Right? We imagine Jesus floating around. Right? Never having a booger or a bowel movement. And I'm not trying to be gross, but we sort of sanitize Jesus and forget He was 100% man. Flesh and blood, just like you and I are. Except for He was 100% God too, which is nothing like we are. Right? But this is what C.S. Lewis, he imagined this person saying Jesus can't really identify because he never gave in to temptation so he doesn't know what it's like. Lewis flips that on his ear and he says, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. <laughs> you gave in so quickly you don't know what it would have been like when it dialed up to ten. Right? He lives a sheltered life. We're the ones who live the shelter life because we just give in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Mm. The only, real, only complete realist. Listen, he fought and he defeated the monster every single time. He was tested as we are, and yet he was perfect. Which allows him to be our sympathetic high priest. He doesn't roll, listen to me, Jesus does not roll his eyes at your pain and your complaints and your struggle. He doesn't wag his head in disgust and exhaustion that, oh no, here comes Gunner again. That's not who Jesus is. Every one of us needs help. Here's a very deep theological statement. We are not God. He needs nothing. But we are not God, and we need help. We have weaknesses, needs, doubts, confusion, limitations of all kinds. We, have, we need a lot of help, but we also have something else. Down in the bottom of our hearts, we know that we are sinners, and because of that, we know we don't deserve the help that we need. And here's what we do with that. Now, here, here's your options. Here's what most people do. You can try the typical coping mechanisms of man, you can try to drown it all out. I'm going to be Superman or Superwoman. I don't need anything or anybody. Or you can try to drown it in a life spent swimming in, the, in a pool of pleasures of this world. Drink, sex, money, fame. Or maybe, maybe you just sort of give in to the paralysis. You just give in to the despair. You become a, a, a nihilist, right? And you believe there's just no purpose in anything. Right? Life's just full of pain and misery and then you die. Or you can trust the voice of God and the victory of His Son. And you can find the help that you need. Listen, you're not trapped. Look at me. 
whatever is going on right now, you're not trapped in it. You are not trapped in it. That is a lie from the pits of hell. There is grace. There is help that we all need. It can be yours. But you got to ask. You got to ask. So the question right now is will you ask? Are you going to walk out of this door with a stiff upper lip and say, I know he's offering his help, but I'm so angry at him, bitter at him, frustrated about him, have my doubts about him, that I'm just going to walk out of here and keep trying to do it my way? I pray that you'll ask for help. I pray that you'll call out for grace. And I testify that 13 years ago I did. And he transformed my life. It's not perfect. It's hard sometimes. But it's so worth it. And I know that whatever I go through, I don't go through it alone. The Lord is with me. The Lord is with me. He can be with you too if you'll ask. Pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that in these moments, your Holy Spirit would do what only your Holy Spirit can do that you would take the word that has been preached, convict and pierce hearts, encourage and build up those who need to be encouraged and built up. And Father, break down and tear apart those who need to be broke down and torn apart for their own good. Whatever it is you see fit to do, we submit this time into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys respond as David and the band lead us. I'll be in the back of the room if anybody needs to talk. You don't have to come and talk to me can do it right there at your chair. You can come up here. You can come talk to me. I would just ask you this. Whatever the Holy Spirit is leading you to do, be obedient. Just be obedient. And don't put it off. Don't put it off. Because the graveyard in hell will be full of people who said, I'll get to that tomorrow. Don't put it off. Follow the lead of the Holy Spirit as he prompts you.